In this edition of the podcast, the Coalition Government has been returned for a third term. I have always believed in miracles. And tonight we've been delivered another one. Elections are not won or lost on arts policy, but what does another three years of conservative reign mean for the arts in Australia? We'll chat with Esther Anatolitis with the National Association of Visual Arts about the way forward. The White Rabbit Gallery has a new show in Victoria at the NGV, no less, a fairy tale in red times. That presents works by 26 Chinese artists, and the exhibition grew out of a different idea, and David Williams, the curator, will join us to talk about that. And speaking about ideas changing course, Alexi Glass Cantor at Artspace has much to share about how 52 artists, 52 actions grew and grew and grew. I'm Tim Stackpole and this is Inside the Gallery. Thanks for downloading the podcast once again. Now, I didn't mention in the last edition about the transcription of interviews that we've been doing. And these have come about because a few fans of the podcast are hearing impaired. And I received a few notes, probably in frustration from people who can't hear, but who love art and would also love to enjoy what we talk about in this podcast series. And the transcripts come about because of this. The Podcast Prize Wheel, which is sponsored by Pixel Perfect Pro Lab. The proceeds of their sponsorship go towards having our interviews transcribed, and we spin the Podcast Prize Wheel in each episode to determine the order in which our guests are interviewed. Pixel Perfect Pro Lab are phenomenal in printing images for professional photographers or undertaking photographic prints of artworks, with a special emphasis and expertise in faithful colour rendering and reproduction. So from photo printing to fine art printing to art reproduction, head to their website www.pixelperfect.com.au and learn how they guarantee accuracy, consistency and quality. That's pixelperfect.com.au. Okay, so let me write today's interviews on the prize wheel. We've divided it up into three sections. There's Esther from Nava, David Williams from the White Rabbit Gallery... And Alexi at Artspace. Okay, let's give it a spin. Oh, very timely. Esther Anatolitas is the Executive Director at the National Association for the Visual Arts, which is the national peak body protecting and promoting the professional interests of the Australian visual and media arts, craft and design sector. Esther is on the line. Thanks for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. The association took some fairly aggressive advocacy in the lead-up to the federal election and some hefty newspaper advertising as well, and it was urging voters to consider a party with significant and articulated art and culture policies. Given that, have you been dealt a bit of a blow with this election result? Oh, look, I think the election result is confusing uh, not only for people in the art sector, but for uh, people across the country who were expecting the next government to take a really responsible approach to arts and cultural policy, to environmental policy, uh, to employment policy around wages and fair pay, uh, to a whole range of different things. And so I'm hoping that the successful coalition's campaign was about healing their internal rifts and sort of, mm-hmm. you know, becoming a lot more focused on what they now need to identify as national issues because being Prime Minister is not a, not a popularity contest. Leading government is not simply about putting out, um, you know, some some slogans. It's a serious responsibility and now we need to see the government taking that responsibility seriously. And how does that reflect, though, particularly with you in the arts sector? 
Ah, oh, look, I think it's um, it has been, uh, you know, a matter of really serious concern that the sector's been talking about for years and years, that not only does the coalition not have a policy, mm. but uh, they have, under the previous arts minister, conducted the most destructive action against artists and the arts sector that we've ever seen in Australia. So to his credit, the former Minister for the Arts, Mitch Fifield, did his best to step back from that and return some of the funds to the Australia Council. But then since that time, we haven't seen any policy develop. And this is a, an urgent situation. Artists' incomes are declining. Career mm. prospects are declining. We do need the government to take the art sector seriously. And, you know, we, we, we've yet to see once the new government is formed uh, who the next minister will be, but we'll be looking forward to speaking to that person at the earliest opportunity. Yeah, certainly Arts Day on the Hill, for example, is a big advocacy push from NAVA, but that doesn't come around till August, if I'm right. Do you need to move before then? Oh, absolutely. The August event is going to be the first of, of an annual series of events that we've got some great funding for, thanks to the philanthropy of Daniel Beeson. We have funding to, to do this for three years. That That's just one aspect of the work that we do to make sure that advocacy is really well-connected, well-organised and sustained. But yeah, great advocacy for the arts isn't just a one-off thing that we do around an election campaign or, or an annual thing. It's it, It's got to be ongoing. So we've got our advocacy toolkit that a lot of people use during the campaign. We'll be updating that to guide people on how to get in touch with MPs who've been newly elected. We've got a whole bunch of stuff that we'll be putting out in the next little while. And uh, yeah, we just uh, keep going and, and, and get on with it. Now, looking from a government perspective and a national perspective as well, what does art bring to economies? How does an arts minister, for instance, set their portfolio as a legitimate contributor to the country? Oh, look, artists inspire us, connect us with our emotions, the the rigour and the work that artists engage with makes it possible for us to think about identity, think about culture and, and, and creativity. And of course, we know that if we look at just the economy, the World Bank tells us that the skills that we need in the future and even today are all around creativity, innovation, critical thinking, thinking outside the box and so on. We know from figures that the Ministry for the Arts released late last year that the arts and cultural industries contribute $117 billion mm. to the national economy. But if we look at that figure and look at the report that outlines where all that comes from, that figure doesn't actually include sales of visual arts. It doesn't include the commercial gallery sector. It doesn't include the economic value of exhibitions at artist-owned initiatives all over Australia. So we've actually got a lot of work to do to make sure that the contemporary arts are well represented in that figure. The figure, the total contribution is well above $110 billion. So we need the government to be aware of the contribution to the economy, the contribution that the arts makes to education, to community health and well-being, to mental health. It's quite extraordinary when we begin to think about and to consider all the ways in which the work of artists enriches our lives, our health and our communities. Considering... Those types of figures, what or why do you think the government has difficulty translating that into meaningful and worthwhile policy? I wonder whether arts policy, you know, just seems too intricate and too hard. There's a lot of great work that has been done by policymakers, researchers, academics. We 
along with the Monash University's Masters of Cultural and Creative Industries, we presented a really great day called uh, Australian Cultural Policy the Next Decade in early April in Melbourne, which set out all the great work that, that people are doing to outline you know, key elements of, of arts and cultural policy. So I think people often say, oh, we need more data. If only we had data, we could make the case clear. But we are swimming and drowning in data. (laughs) What politicians mean when they say that is, can you make a more compelling argument? Mm. The arts minister is already won over. It's their parliamentary front benches, the treasurer, others in other portfolios who need to be connected. And so that's where, as a sector, we need to focus our advocacy we need to be speaking to our local members and with things like Arts Day on the Hill, we need a good national focus that gets the arts into the media, into the news cycle and top of mind for decision makers. Looking at what you do, I think it's all well and good to think globally and act locally, but Esther, given that work, how frustrating is it when you see other nations recognise what arts bring to their culture? I think about Spain and Italy and France, for example, And then you have to turn around and look back at how overlooked the contribution art makes to this country. I mean, how do you, how do you stay sane? (laughs) Oh, what a great question. (laughs) Oh, look, I think the global comparison can be deflating. You look at Spain, you look at France, where there is a great respect for the artist as a worker. And there are ways in which artists are recognized in terms of, you know, guaranteed annual income, in terms of tax and so on. Uh, You look at Canada, where the budget of the Canada Council was doubled by the current government. And then, of course, you can look a lot more closely at New Zealand, where there's a prime minister who has the confidence to speak publicly and constructively about what artists contribute, what artists do, what art does for all of us. So I think it would be great uh, if if our MPs would look at those global comparisons and, and really kind of step up and, and want to become leaders. Uh, we have this strange anomaly in Australia where, on the one hand, research from the Australia Council shows us that 98% of Australians participate in the arts all the time, you know, see art, uh, read books, see new work, buy art, play music, etc. But then there's a small contingent of the media who will uh, come out with the sort of lazy journalism about attacking an artist when they've got a grant, but the project title sounds a bit strange. You know, mm. it's it's very boring and very lazy. And often these are the same journalists who, of course, are taking their children to exhibitions, to performances, to movies, to making sure they've got great Australian authors to read, that they're seeing the work of invigorating, inspiring artists in, in galleries. So I think we need to overcome that really boring, lazy attitude and embrace the people in our community who are the most inspiring, the most risk-taking when it comes to creating our future. Do you think there's a bit of a concept that perhaps art is thought of being of the elite or for the elite, and perhaps that's a bit of a hurdle for government or ministers to overcome? Yeah, I hear that a lot, and it's it's funny. This is one of those preconceptions that really worries me because we look at the experience of the average artist, and again, quoting from the research of the Australia Council, the average Australian artist's income is declining, and on the last study... Uh, the average artist only earns $18,000 from their creative practice alone. Mm. That is below the poverty line. 
and the average amount that an Australian artist earns from all sources of income is only $48,000, which is well below Australian average weekly earnings. Terrible. We often say that artists are Australia's most over-educated underclass. <laughs> like, this is very much not an elite activity. Mm. There are a small handful of artists in Australia who have done really, really well, who've got global profiles and are doing really well in terms of the sales of work. But unfortunately, the, the broader experience is just not that at all. And so I worry also that we talk, talk about elite, it's also not just about the economic experience of artists, but it's also the way we talk about art. And I've met many arts ministers over the years where I know that they have felt really nervous about coming to openings, mm. you know, in case someone asked them about the work and they'd have to talk about it. And so there's that kind of nervousness too, feeling like, you know, they won't know what to say. Whereas, of course, artists and all of us welcome the most honest, the most heartfelt responses to people's work. And so I think there's um, a lot of work to be done in just connecting people with what arts experiences are and mean, and then reminding us that the overwhelming majority of Australia's artists are really just struggling to get by. Mm. Well, tough work for artists and tough work for politicians too, I guess. But Esther, you and the team at NAVA certainly help guide the way. Thanks for that work you do on behalf of all those in the arts who listen to this podcast. And thanks for speaking to us today on Inside the Gallery. Thanks very much and thanks for having me. Great to get to talk to you. That's Esther Anatolitas, the Executive Director at the National Association for the Visual Arts. Very active, very busy with advocacy, there's no doubt about that. And if you would like to learn more about the association or perhaps bring some more worthy attention to the arts then visit www.visualarts.net.au. Two more interviews to go, and we're going to give the Pixel Perfect Pro Lab prize wheel another spin. And we're going to chat with Alexi Glass Cantor from Artspace, which has commissioned 52 artists across 31 countries for what's known as 52 Artists, 52 Actions. And that's Artspace's ambitious year-long online project. It actually ran from January 2018 to January 2019, and it highlighted artistic practice across Asia. The project commissioned 52 artists to stage actions in unique locations in the region and then share them with global audiences online. Now, Artspace was always going to accompany the online component with a book, which has been published by Thames and Hudson, that's subtitled Small Acts of Disobedience. But the huge year-long project has now grown even more. Alexi is the Executive Director of Artspace in Sydney. She's also the Chair of the Contemporary Art Organisations of Australia and on the Academic Board of the National Art School. She's joining us on the phone. Thanks for your time on the podcast, Alexi. Thanks for having me, Tim. Now, this whole concept, it sounds huge. How did it all start? What's the idea behind 52 Artists and 52 Actions? <laughs> it is huge, Tim, let me tell you. It was an idea that I actually had five years ago, and I was thinking about how could we use online and new media platforms in a more effective way to think about how we could capture, create and commission new content by artists in diverse locations to think about the social, cultural and political ideas of our times. And 
Art Space is a fantastic organisation in Willamalla, mm-hmm. Sydney, a beautiful building, great galleries, but a lot of our audience don't come to Sydney. They don't come to Willamalla. A huge amount of our audience is actually online. A huge amount of our audience is by reputation or right. through the artists that we collaborate with. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to think about Australia's role in the region and we wanted to think about the region in a radical way. And we wanted to map Asia from Turkey through to Hawaii. And if Asia is Turkey through to Hawaii, which is how I think of my Asia, mm-hmm. then then what does that mean in terms of our accountabilities as social, cultural and political um, citizens of the region? What's the role? What's our capacity to give back? How do we think about how we track the specificities of individual contexts in such vast a region and actually create the space for artists to reach new audiences with the ideas of the place that they come from? So, yeah, 52 Artists, 52 Actions began um, as a crazy concept. We spoke with Instagram in New York, who crazily enough have a direct of visual arts, which is not so crazy when you think about the fact that it's a visual platform. Good to hear. Tremendous to meet with and get their insights into how they think about creating new ways of creating content and commissioning work in that platform and that environment. Instagram was a good one for us because it's visually led, so images inside the square. And in a sense, the kind of spoken word isn't the kind of primary force of how you communicate within that format. But the great thing with Instagram is that you can actually apply almost any language to the content or description. So you can use bilingual forms of describing projects. And what we decided to do was give an artist a week, starting each Monday, free reigns to commission, create and produce their action. We had a long list of over 300 artists that we took back to 52. They were artists from 32 countries across the region. They came from Nepal, Hong Kong, Myanmar, China, Samoa. Indonesia, Sri Lanka, and we looked at gender diversity, we looked at cultural diversity, we looked at emerging and established artists. We wanted to put together a list of artists that was complicated and nuanced. We looked at activists, artists who don't ascribe to themselves the title of artists and those Mm -hmm. for whom, you know, the idea of being activists is a more lateral concept. And we decided to also create in tandem with the Instagram feed that launched in January 2018 and ran through to January 2019, an accumulative online archive that documented the projects in depth, giving the artists to have more capacity to to have more documentation, more resourcing, and also that we could share with networks and colleagues. So how can we share artists and ideas with a broader community as well? And then we partnered with Thames and Hudson to commission a publication at the end of the project, which would be an encyclopedia of artist action. And that publication will be launched in July this year in tandem with the exhibition at ArtSpace. Okay, so the Instagram feed already has all the works available to view. Yes, we kicked off with Richard Bell. The uh, the artist from Queensland who's currently in Venice kicking up a storm with his chained up replica of the Australian Pavilion as a guerrilla action with his tent embassy. And we began with Richard and Richard actually did an interview for the first week of 52 Artists, 52 Actions with ICANN, who had just then won the Nobel Peace Prize for their mm-hmm. work in trying to get countries to sign a nuclear disarmament treaty. And the last action a year later was an artist from South Australia called James Talor, who comes from a place called Kerner in the top southeast, mm-hmm. I think, of South Australia. And he's looking at Indigenous plants and how to rejuvenate, replant and replenish the landscape. Um, and he is an Indigenous artist as well. He was part of a really key collective in South Australia called 116th. So it was great to begin 52 Artists with Richard on nuclear disarmament and the history of unsanctioned testing in Central Australia and to finish with new strategies that artists are leading about 
rejuvenating the environment and contributing back to community. And every one of the other actions in between was absolutely of its own form. It was a project that when we began, we had no funding for at all and we had mm. to sell it around. We did an application to the Australia Council and we received feedback that the project only had 17% artistic merit. Um, okay. <laughs> and we figured if the project had such a low score for artistic merit, we must be onto something. Uh, so, <laughs> and we actually in the end did a, a Kickstarter campaign in, um, in 2017 right. that enabled us to raise, the bottom line for us was that we wanted to raise a $500 artist fee for every artist participating in the project nice. so that artists working in the space of socially engaged and political practices could be remunerated for their labour. And so $500 for an artist in places like Malaysia or Bougainville or Pakistan goes quite a long way. Of course. As it does in Australia. And we raised $32,000 and then wow. other partners came on board to support the project, including universities, Thames and Hudson and others. And so we were able to achieve this really vast and ambitious project and and nothing really like this has been tried before. And and if we'd known how much work it was to commission an artist a week in a remote <laughs> location across Asia from Turkey to Hawaii before we began, we may be a little bit more scared. <laughs> yes, I was going to say it does sound like a curatorial nightmare having to commission a new artist per week. But going back to the corporate side of this, because activism seems to be the core of what you're trying to achieve or what you have achieved, but in terms of dealing with Instagram as a corporation – did they put any caveats on how this was to unfold? They actually um, provided support for us to make sure that we wouldn't go through. So they made sure that this project was actually scaffolded within a remit of projects that they right. acknowledge as unique conditions within this space. And it meant that actually we weren't going to be subject to some of the same censorship that other um, users might be, which was great. Wow, great. So we were able to actually negotiate less censorship rather than more. Throughout my career, when I've worked across the region, I think you can collaborate with forms and structures of bureaucracy power, both in the governmental and corporate sector, to create different sorts of structures that might support the production of content that might sit antithetically sometimes yeah. with the espoused values of those entities. But if you work with them in a generative way to advocate for the value of expanding space for difficult ideas to be communicated in a, in a meaningful and well-contextualised format, then they'll generally come on board to support them. And, and also, you know, you want to be aware that you're not, you know, we had to be aware of, of the various kinds of conditions of censorship. You know, Instagram's not a great platform for users in China. We mm. had artists from China, but they could migrate the content over to their platforms like WeChat. And we found that a lot of the artists have VPNs at home, so they could always log on mm -hmm. to Instagram yes. because to work yeah. as an artist anywhere in the world and be connected to opportunities for exhibitions or participation in other contexts, you have to be able to at least email. So a lot of these artists actually have the kind of technology at home that enables them to bypass things that might otherwise block them. And then they would migrate the content they could build for us into other platforms. And we saw our audience build not just through Instagram, but across other mm -hmm. online platforms in different countries specific to the week of the artist action. Mm, yes, it's a great uh, example of what can be achieved for the artist by incorporating so much of this in terms of the online space. There's also the website still has all the in-depth content. So we do have the websites live okay. and that has in-depth content that documents the projects as well. Were you surprised at all at some of the themes that were raised? I mean, we can well expect there was the exploitation of women and children and human trafficking in there as well, oppression of political ideas and views, religious freedoms, 
being confined. Was there anything else that perhaps surprised you in terms of the subject matter that was raised? Something I'm always interested in that I saw come through in this project, you know, those are all, you know, they are relevant big themes and the ways that you might predict that they would be communicated Mm -hmm. um, in some cases were there. But then I think something that's really interesting in the 21st century and something I talk about quite a bit in my practice as a curator is vulnerability as a political act and how making yourself vulnerable or communicating your uncertainty or communicating, not that you have a kind of binary position or the sanctimonious or kind of moral ground, the moral high ground, but instead that you feel complicit or, you know, otherwise kind of compromised yourself or you find it difficult to articulate the truth of who you are and how you find ways to do that. A really great artist called Ritu Satur from Bangladesh um, in her week spoke about her guilt at not being the kind of mother that she should be in Bangladeshi culture, right. but also wanting to be an artist. And was that decision a selfish mm. one to choose to make something as oblique in that context as contemporary art? Yeah. And what's her responsibility as a mother, as a citizen, as a member of her family and her community, but also her need and her desire and her want to participate in a larger discussion, one which she's largely you know, not meant to be seen to be participating within in the way in which she does. So she made a series of very intimate photographs about her own guilt and shame about motherhood. You know, mm-hmm. I think other artists, you know, took positions, you know, Deborah Kelly did a really hilarious one during international, the week of International Women's Day, where she just made a series of collaborations with groups of community participants to create stickers about something that women might be angry about in Sydney. And they ended up making a sticker campaign about man spreading on trains. <laughs> <laughs> just like, you know, just the sheer kind of like, yep. you know, tripod anxiety that comes from right, trying to get sure. on you know, okay. the Bondi Junction <laughs> to Martin Place at 5 p.m. You know, on a Wednesday. Just, you know, so quite intimate sort of forms of protest. And then your bigger picture ones. And it was, you know, great to see how artists brought to bear kind of intimacies and, you know, and but how they also told their own story in a particular way. And then how other artists then, of course, addressed in much more direct ways yeah. the kind of, you know, more direct concerns. It's an insanely diverse collection of works that you put together. And where do you go from here? What does art space do next in order to match the reaction that you've seen with this project? Well, with this project, what we actually decided to do was, you know, we had decided emphatically at the outset that it was only ever going to be on Instagram, online and in the publication. And then, you know, because nothing if not contrary, then we decided to do the show at ArtSpace. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the show here at ArtSpace is wildly diverse and is was quite a big thing to corral into a format that could be negotiated by audiences that could be performed by audiences. And so we'd love to see all your kind of audience come and join us for the show. And we will be having a conference and a symposia in July over the 18th to the 20th of July. Right. And we will be flying a number of the artists in from different countries across the region to undertake performances, talks and lectures. And we're partnering with Asia Link and the Asia Society on that symposia to talk about what are the political implications of Australia describing itself as part of a region mm. as as Turkey to Hawaii, because there are political and economic and cultural implications of that kind of positioning. So that's a great way. And we'd love people to come and join us for that. And then, you know, we're always just 
you know, we're always running a huge program down here across studios, international partnerships, collaborations, publishing, exhibition making through our galleries and our ideas platform, as well as regional touring. Our Just Not Australian show is just hitting the road to 23 regional venues now over the next two years. Beautiful. It's a show with 19 artists mm. looking at the upcoming Cook anniversary in the language of Australian nationalism. Um, but yeah, and then in, in September, August, we go on to our next show, which is a commission with an artist called Mello Callahan. Um, we've partnered with Confort Madon in France and the Museum of Contemporary Art and Design in the Philippines to commission a film, a three-channel film and a performance work looking, it's called Centre of the Centre. And Mel travelled to the centre of the Indian Ocean with a Yale University research facility to find points in the ocean where new life is being created. And if you go 12 miles down to the centre of the Indian Ocean, I'm assured that you will find hot air vents that come from the Earth's core that's meeting subarctic water. And at that point, scientists are finding new life on Earth. Gosh. Um, so we're really excited about that project. Wow, and, and that show will also happen in the Philippines. And um and in France. So we try with our shows as much as possible to tour them, like with Just Not Australian going, you know, to venues across Australia and every state and territory now, through to something like Mellow Callahan, which will also tour through to a show like 52 Artists, 52 Actions, which has migrated through Instagram, online, an upcoming publication, an exhibition and a symposia. So there's lots of different ways for people to engage with what we do. Yes. Well, congratulations, Alexi, with all of that. Really appreciate your time and thanks for joining us on Inside the Gallery. A pleasure and hope to see you soon inside the gallery. That's Alexi Glass-Cantor from Artspace talking about 52 artists, 52 actions, an expansive endeavour by any measure. Take a look at www.artspace.org.au and the exhibition in Sydney runs through until the 4th of August. No need to spin the Pixel Perfect ProLab podcast prize wheel because there's only one remaining subject to cover. The White Rabbit Gallery is iconic, owned by Judith Nielsen. The gallery exhibits selections from her collection of 21st century Chinese contemporary art. It is one of the largest collections of its kind in the world, and actually thinking about it, it might be the largest private-owned collection of Chinese contemporary art. And the White Rabbit celebrates 10 years this year. Now the collection can be seen elsewhere, as the NGV, the National Gallery of Victoria, presents A Fairy Tale in Red Times, works from the White Rabbit collection. It includes pieces by 26 Chinese artists, curated by the White Rabbit Gallery's own David Williams, who joins us now on the podcast via WhatsApp. David, thanks for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for the invite. Now, David, the notion of this exhibit actually taking items from an existing collection and then repurposing them, I guess, in a way, and taking them to Victoria to a larger venue, how did that come about? Who approached who? Well, it happened in the middle of last year, Tony Elwood from the NGV, I uh, was visiting the gallery and uh, he came with the purpose of telling us about their winter masterpiece series, which obviously is uh, focused on Chinese art. Mm. So with the Terracotta Warriors and also Psycho Jan and showing their Ai Weiwei work again. And they had an idea for an exhibition that was going to be using um, works from their collection, photography works from their collection. And he sort of mooted the idea of maybe borrowing some works from the White Rabbit to um, form a dialogue with their works. And so that was sort of July, August last year. And, you know, that was a very casual chat. And we started, I started putting together a list of works of mine, work with what they were hoping to show. And then um, we went down in December, sort of just for a, a casual chat to talk about what we'd been thinking. And during the course of the day, yeah. we, um, 
our involvement grew to the show that um, that became. So yeah, it was just um, it was quite organic in its approach, just coming from lending a few works to this um, terrific show with twenty eight artists now. So it's amazing. Yeah, most certainly is David. But that's a pretty short timeline. Did the did the whole thing become a little bit daunting? Um, it. No, it wasn't because right. it's such a good opportunity, and uh, the the spaces that uh, the NGV have are so different to the White Rabbit Gallery itself. So, you know, to be able to work within rooms like those were, mm. was really exciting, and um, it was a quick turnaround. We'd sort of been working on I've got a number of shows in advance, so this was kind of borrowing some works from that from future shows and. And putting them together with um, all the favourite works as well, so we, we, it came together quite easily. It was a really nice process. You know, in December when we came back from the visit, I put together a, a really long, long list of works that I thought would work really well. And um, then I went down in uh, beginning of January and had a discussion with their team, and then came back and sort of put the, a short list together and, and an exhibition plan. And that's yeah how it came about. It was it was it was a really great experience, to tell you the truth. And was there very much discussion between the pieces that you wanted to include and the pieces that they wanted to include in Victoria, or did they give you carte blanche and away you went? Um, yeah, they gave us carte blanche. So it was it was really amazing. So Simon Bateman came up, the senior curator from NGV came up to um, Dangrove, which is the collection warehouse, um, just after we'd been down in December, and you know had a, a quick look around and it was just sat down afterwards and it was like this amazing just do whatever you want and they were here to help facilitators and you know it was amazing right and the only, we only had one request tony elwood had seen the work that he um particularly liked and so we put that in as well and basically that was it it was just a really really great process you know but we'd we'd obviously gone through the long list of of things and there was you know some works that we picked out when it was just going to be a a joint show and they 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 stayed you know it was um jujin show's ship of time which is uh amazing work so they were really keen to get that Mm -hmm. And a few of the other bigger works that hadn't been shown in Australia yet. So, um, yeah, it was just a great experience putting it together. And how did you manage having to move those pieces so far? I mean, I'm guessing that many of them had only ever been seen and shown at the White Rabbit Gallery. Uh, was it nerve-wracking at all for you to load them up and and have them transported all the way down to Victoria? Um, yeah, it was. Um, that was all down to our collections team who did a remarkable job. So once the the show had been finalized you know it was a big job for them putting all the works together mm. and you know a lot of the works hadn't been shown before they uh, one of them actually virtually came straight from china to the ngv we hadn't hadn't even been in sydney um wow. but but works like Julian Schur's ship of time we were going to have it in one of our shows uh, about a year ago and it was pulled at the last minute for space reasons and so yeah for them to go down and it was their first time installing the work, along with the artist's brother who came out to help install. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it was very, very daunting for them. They they did a remarkable job. It was semi-trailers going up and down between wow. Sydney and, and Melbourne for about two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they went down to help unpack and, you know, to all of that sort of consolidation work and, and things. So, yeah, a huge job for the collections team. But, um, 
I think they enjoyed it as well. I hope they did. I hope they enjoyed it as much as us. You know, it was such a, a great time to to work with another gallery, especially someone like the, the NGP. Such a, a rewarding experience for everybody. You know, Judith's thrilled with the exhibition. Yeah. You know, and that's important. So. <laughs> And just on that, you have mentioned Judith Nielsen, and I'm just wondering in terms of the work that you do, and obviously you do work well together, but yeah. do you have to step back sometimes and think when you're looking at art or curating art, yeah. what would Judith think in this situation? Um, we have big discussions, you know, before it went down to the NGV, we had a lot of discussions about mm-hmm. the works um but judith's incredibly um supportive of everything you do and she just lets you lets you fly and you know we go over the details and the decisions why this and this but yeah. um you know all of the works are from the collection so she you know obviously has a passion for anything that's um selected you know they're all she doesn't have a personal favorite but they're all her favorites are all her babies so to speak mm-hmm. so um, yeah. she, she's just happy to have it, it shown and you know a much wider audience than we could possibly have to get the white rabbit you know our, our space is limited compared to what the ngv can offer so sure. you know it's an amazing opportunity for for the collection to be shown to such a huge audience and yeah i think she's just super excited about that it is a very unique space, a unique gallery, the White Rabbit. And I'm just wondering when Judith acquires the artworks, she sees how it may display in the White Rabbit Gallery. But how is it different when you take it to a different space like the National Gallery of Victoria? Yeah, it's it's quite amazing. Um, and and when we see them in China, you know, we often see them in studios and then to mm. see them in the gallery, they they tend to have a, a totally different feel and and it's often quite surprising. So seeing the works that we'd already shown in the White Rabbit in the in a different space was really interesting for me as well and and how how they work in a different space um, was really interesting. So, you know, it was, it was such a good um, experience. You know, I, I gave my ideas for the exhibition plan to the NGV, the curatorial team and the exhibition design team. Sure. And obviously they're much more aware of how the space works and things like that. So they did some fine tuning after that um, because they're so much more, more aware of how people move around the gallery and things like that. And, and even those things make a difference in, in how the works are viewed, you know, how people, where they, where they are and where they stop at things. And we've got um, a few works that we have shown Millennium Waves, which is the beautiful um, Tanganan video work. And um, it looks amazing in a big space. And I'd, mm. I'd always mm. wanted it there to see it in, in a big space because um, when Judith and I first saw it in China, it was in um, a museum, which was almost like the size of an airport hangar. And <laughs> it was intense. It was so, yep. so beautiful. It was, it was staggeringly beautiful. Uh, then when we showed it, the White Rabbit, Obviously, space is limited, so we couldn't possibly hope to replicate that. But, you know, we did mm. we did some things with smokes and mirrors, and you know, it was it was still really effective. But yeah, great to see it with um, the ship of time and in a big space again. Now, having done this and taking such an extensive part of the White Rabbit collection and putting it into another venue with a whole lot more space, do you think this opens the door, the opportunity for you to do more of that sort of stuff? Oh, we'd certainly hope so. Um, you know, Judith has always been very keen to lend to other institutions and um, it's it's been done on a smaller scale in the past, just, you know, singular yeah, works yeah. or maybe a handful of works going, uh, we've got a lot in New Zealand at the moment, actually. Um, but to have a touring show would be incredible. You know, some of our 
more popular shows would be great to um to take around and just introduce to a new audience for the white rabbit and uh, hopefully get people interested enough to come up to sydney if they're interstate and and have a look mm. i think you know the the beauty of the show that's on at the ngb at the moment it's it's going to speak very well with the the shows that we will be having at the white rabbit at the same time you know the current show is very much about younger artists and are showing at the ngv so um it's a really nice discussion point and um then in september we're having our 10th anniversary year this year which is why the ngv worked really well as well and so in uh, september our show will be a show that walks through the first 10 years of the collection so it's very different again to what's being shown at the ngv so i think both of these shows have a really nice dialogue with the NGV shows, which is great. David, look, you have done a lovely job. The show in Victoria, A Fairy Tale in Red Times, is just superb. I certainly recommend anyone travelling to go and take a look at it, and we really appreciate your time on the podcast. Thank you very much for your time. And that's David Williams from the White Rabbit Gallery talking about A Fairy Tale in Red Times, currently underway at the National Gallery of Victoria. It runs until the first week of October. If you need details, you can go to the gallery's website, ngv.vic.gov.au. If you want to take a look at the White Rabbit Gallery itself, the website is whiterabbitcollection.org. And just quietly, the handmade dumplings from the tea house there are particularly recommended. That's the podcast for now. There's loads going on around the country, but please, if you are travelling or have a spare day, there's always something most compelling underway at galleries around the country, so make sure you check online to uncover a few surprises, generally away from the regular tourist haunts. That is the podcast for now. Transcripts are available in the episode description at www.insidethegallery.com.au. Thanks for downloading. Be sure to subscribe and share so you never miss an episode. And we'll always keep updating Inside the Gallery's Facebook and Instagram pages with exhibitions and other stuff that we love, so be sure to follow. I'm Tim Stackpole, and please do remember when you're visiting the gallery, remove your backpack, okay? Bye-bye for now.